baptism. Before and after, from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And this is part 7 in our series in Ephesians. Now last week we looked at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and noted how he prayed that all his readers will understand that they will come to to grasp the amazing greatness of God. Not only that, but that they might know him, his calling, his riches, his power. And he he catalogued all our spiritual possessions in Christ in that marvellous first chapter of this letter. Now, having described these in detail, as, as, as we begin the second chapter, Paul turns from our spiritual possessions in Christ to our position in Christ. And remember that this letter was written to, to believers living in a large pagan city where anything and everything went on. Say, if you think that the times we live in are pretty bad, you have no idea what it would have been like in Ephesus. A hundred years ago, the Times, the Times magazine, the Times used to be a big magazine, sent out an inquiry to uh, a question uh, to famous authors, those people who were renowned to have an opinion and influences at the time, and, and the question was this, what's wrong with the world today? And Chesterton responded simply, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. And that was the end of his response. Let's be honest. The world is a mess because the human heart is a mess. And this morning, you're going to get, walk away from this place probably offended. That is the aim of my message this morning. So if, if, I, so if I get abused this morning, I've done my job. <laughs> if you walk away here comfortable and happy and joyful, then I've, I've missed the mark. Some 43 years ago, the, the late Christian scholar uh, John Stott wrote, and I quote, I sometimes wonder if good and thoughtful people have ever been more depressed about the human predicament than we are today. This is 1979. And he says, Man is incapable of managing his own affairs, creating a just, free, humane and tranquil society. If that was true then, it's not all that long ago, I know, 43 years ago, it's not all that long ago, but if that was true then, I wonder how he would have described the current situation as we have prayed for Myanmar and Ukraine and so many other parts of our troubled world. I thought we, we, we progressed both intellectually and socially. We have so much knowledge about that. We, 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 we learn how to deal with despots and others who, who just want to control and destroy and kill. I thought we dealt with all of that already. 
But no, you think that the Germany of the 1930s was dumb, ignorant people? Germany in the 1930s was the most educated society the world had ever known. So if they could be controlled by a Hitler, what do you think makes us any special? What, what do you think makes Russia or Myanmar or anybody else just taking up arms and start killing? There is a problem. There is a problem. And the problem is not knowledge. It goes deeper than that. So the words in our passage show a very pessimistic, very pessimistic view of man and his situation. But it, very pessimistic towards man, but very optimistic with regards to its view of God. It's like, I suppose it's like some dieting ads. Remember those where it's common to to place or juxtapose the before and after pics, right? The, the before pic is, you know, it's very detailed in black and white and the, prettiest, the, the, the picture is not very pretty and then next to that they, they show the success of the, of the program. Because they wanted to highlight the improvement, at least on the surface. Similarly, here in, in verses 1 to 3 we see what we are before, what we were before, and then in verses 4 to 7 we see the after, the positive outcome of what God has done. Another way to look at it is that Paul in this passage paints a vivid contrast between what man is by nature and what he can become by grace. So let's get into our text this morning. Verses, so let's look at the, the verse, the, the passage in verses 1 to 3, the before. This is the picture in black and white, okay? Fully, you know, the ugly picture. In these verses, Paul takes a look at the, the terrible condition of man. We are given a summary of the first three chapters of Romans. So if you've read Romans 1 to 3, this is a summary, three chapters in three verses. And he describes not only the, the, the sin and the guilt of the pagans, those who worship other gods and idolatry and all of that, but he's also, in, that, in, in Romans, he also includes the Jews, as people who are supposed to be religious, who are supposed to be upright, who are supposed to know what it's about. And these words here probably tell us the most difficult truths in the Bible to grasp and to accept and to believe. They are challenging, they, are, they hit us, they offend us. We react to it. Because of this, most of us try and tone it down. And just understand that Paul is not giving us a a portrait of some decadent tribe or fringe minority group in society who get into all sorts of weird stuff. No, this is 
This is the biblical diagnosis of fallen man in fallen society everywhere. And the picture, again, is not pretty. So why does Paul bring up his readers' past as he writes to them? Why does he have to bring it up? Why does he have to remind them of it? Because none of us would like someone to come out and dredge up our history in in this way, even though he doesn't mention any individuals in particular, he talks to them about their past as a group. I, I, I thought that in Christianity all our past sins have been forgiven, have been forgotten. The thing is, sometimes we forget. And, and you can never fully appreciate the salvation that God has provided, has given you, until you see the hopeless condition out of which he has rescued you. If you ever forget where, where you were, then you will not be able to appreciate where you are and definitely not where you are going. And, and, and this, is, this is the reality. Okay, We were dead, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's pretty blunt. And many struggle with the description of the human condition here as, 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 as it appears a little bit too far-fetched. It just seems so exaggerated. Really? You have to go that far? But remember that he's here he describing the spiritual death of unbelievers. Unbelievers. This is what we were, and this could be your kids right now. Could be your mum and dad. So death does not refer to inactivity, but it portrays separation, alienation. From outward appearances, unbelievers don't appear dead, but very much alive. They seem to be the ones who are really enjoying and getting the most of life. They're the ones that appear to be living life to the fullest. They're having fun. But the Bible says they're spiritually Dead. Why? Because they are blind to the glory of Jesus. They are deaf to the voice of the Spirit. No awareness of the presence of God, of his personal reality. And there is definitely no longing for fellowship with other Christians, with other believers, with with God's people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. Cold, no feeling, no breathing, dead. All lost sinners are dead and the only difference between one sinner and another is the state of decay. Are you offended yet? We should be. 
You see, the drug addict on the street may appear more decayed outwardly than the honourable MP in Parliament, but without Christ, both are dead in sin. Let's face it, one corpse cannot be more dead than another. You can dress up the corpse in a suit, it's in a coffin, or you can dress up a corpse in shorts and a t-shirt. They're both dead. That's the reality. This means that our world is this vast graveyard filled with people who are dead while they live. I'm not saying this is what the scriptures are saying. In his letter, in Paul's letter to Timothy, Paul gives Timothy some instruction on how to deal with people in church. And he tells him, this is what he tells him, the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So he uses this language in other places. And he's referring to someone who is part of a church, lost her husband for some reason, and then just says, that's it, I'm, I'm just going to enjoy myself now, even though she calls herself a Christian. She's dead, even while she lives. Now, today, today, instead of accepting this biblical description Contemporary Christianity is plagued with what I or many others call the therapeutic gospel. This is the, the tendency that to think of unbelievers as being spiritually sick. So just give them a spiritual pill and they'll get better. The biblical diagnosis says they are dead. So they don't need a teacher, they don't need a coach, they don't need a counsellor, they don't need another course on self-improvement, they don't need another lesson on communication to save them. Yes, after you're a Christian, those are all very helpful things. But in your standing before God, this is what you need. This is what you need to recognise. First and foremost, what they need is a miracle, not a lifestyle. They don't need resuscitation, they need a resurrection. So, we were dead. We were dead. Secondly, we were disobedient. In which you used to live, when you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now this is, this is how it all started back in the garden, back in Genesis chapter 3, that through disobedience to the word of God, we, we decided to believe Satan's lies rather than God's command. And since that time, mankind has lived in disobedience to God. And there are three forces that encourage man in his disobedience to God. There is the world, there is the devil, and there is the flesh. 
What's your kids' answer when you tell them that they can't do something? Why not? Everybody else is doing it. They are appealing to the course of this world. Welcome. When, when they hear, if it feels good, do it, they're appealing to the flesh. And the worst one of all is, well, oh, the devil made me do it. There you have number three. And the ruler, it's an interesting expression, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The Jews believed that the air was the, the abode of the demons. This is where they reside, in the air. The point here is that the forces of Satan and his cronies, his demons, are not down there, okay, but rather up here. Satan is not some evil, mystical, fictional character from far away and long ago that belongs in some old novel. He and his demons are nasty and they form part of the unseen powers. We we talk more about this in in chapter 6. But Satan seeks to direct the lives of, of all unbelievers. And most of them, I would say all of them, are under his control. But he also seeks to influence believers. And because he himself was disobedient to God, he is always trying to get us to disobey God as well, just like he did with Adam and Eve. You're going to believe God's word or are you going to believe Satan and his cronies? Who are you going to believe? Thirdly, depraved. First part of verse 3. And all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Wow. Wow. Paul, come on, man, not depraved. What are you going on about? Maybe some of you are, even as I say that, you're, you're sort of, no, nah, it doesn't, no, nah, I can't accept that. Because we tend to reserve the word depraved to the, the child molester, the serial rapist. Right? But it actually sums up the description pretty well, what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And it is all of us, not just some of us. And up to this point, the Apostle Paul has been saying, you, because he was referring to the Gentiles, you lot out there, because everybody in the church of Ephesus, just about everybody, were from the Gentile, predominantly Gentiles. But now he includes himself by saying, we, we, Gentiles, Jews, they all need Jesus. All were lost. So, so it is not just the physical act, but it includes, not just the physical act, but includes the desires and the thoughts. How do I know what you're thinking and desiring right now? I've got no idea. 
Physically, I can see you sitting down there, but I don't know where you are. But God does. And it doesn't, it, it, immediately we, we're thinking, oh, this has to be referring to sexual sins. But it doesn't just restrict itself to these. The, the cravings of, of the flesh also covers all forms of the more respectable sins, such as self-confidence, pride, greed, racism, education, heritage. Oh, I'm a mosachook. I don't do those things. Okay. Fine. C.S. Lewis once said, and I quote, A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. End of quote. Have you had enough? We're not finished yet. Doomed, the second part of verse 3. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. In other words, we were condemned. Instead of being children of God, we were children of, of wrath. We were on the road to judgment because we were all guilty. Many try to protest their innocence, but it's in vain. Because of this, the sentence has already been passed. And despite all of this, despite all our badness, God in his patience, in his mercy, in his goodness, in many cases, he waits for the sinner to come home. He waits for the prodigal to come home. He stays his execution until the final hour, until he says enough is enough. If you have not given your life to Christ, stop waiting, stop mucking around and come to him. And let's not try and and pat ourselves on the back by saying, I was never that bad. I was always a good boy. I was always a good girl. I was brought up in church. I have good morals. I used to go to Sunday school in the 60s, so I know what is right and what is wrong. The, the, the reason unbelievers act like unbelievers is that they are following their very nature. It doesn't matter whether they are religious or not. It doesn't matter if they are moral or not. They are just as lost as the most lost pagan. It is their nature. This is why it is useless to talk about reform without regeneration. You need a new nature. You need to be made a new creation. So in these verses, God showed us the hopelessness of our former condition. Dead 
disobedient, depraved, doomed. But something happened. Are you ready for the good news? God intervened in the most marvellous, amazing way. And this is why we are here. So before and now the after. So this whole section is introduced with the conjunction, but. And it's interesting that just about all of the translations have but God together, and it's only the NIV that has, has it a little bit different but because of his great love for us. So we were dead, but God made us alive. We were disobedient by following the flesh, the world, the devil, but God freed us. We were depraved, but God seated us with Christ and gave us a new nature. We were doomed, but God showed us the amazing riches of his grace. We were transported from death to life, from the darkness of the grave to the light of his everlasting life. First of all, let's just breathe here and, and just say, wow, but I'm not finished. Let me show you why we should be thankful, eternally thankful. First of all, he loved us, verse 4. But because of his great love for us. Why did God do all of this when he really didn't have to? In short, he saved us because he loved us. His love is the motivation for his being rich in mercy toward us. In 1 John, our first reading this morning was, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. Remember the chorus? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Remember that? And that is what we are. It is true that God has, it is true that God so loved the world in, in the general sense, yes, but that love had to become personal, particular, in each individual person who was chosen before the creation of the world. We spoke about this. He loved us. Secondly, he awakened us. Verse 5. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. In, in, in the history of revivals in the world, revival is when, when suddenly uh, not just a community but a city, even a country, a whole area of the world comes, it's just awakened to the reality of God and they come to Jesus and, 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 and you see it. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing to be part of and we pray that one day God will do the same to our country of Australia. But in, but in, the, in the 1700s, the, historically it is known as the Great Awakening, both in England and in the US. It was a revival that 
didn't just change lives, it changed communities, it changed society. They were enacting laws which were just, which were which we appreciate now and we're actually taking, you know, we're taking those stuff for granted but the whole society was changed for the better at a crucial time in history. And while God worked in society as a whole, he had to awaken each individual heart first. So when Wesley got up to preach, people come to faith they went, and, they went and surrendered their stolen goods to the cops. They handed themselves in. I'm like, why would you do that? Well, they just want to be converted. And, and in America, he had the same. I mean, this is why the greatest thing, the, the great central fact that the most important truth in all of Christianity is stated here. God made us alive with Christ. And it's all grace. It's all grace. And, and, and since we have not been saved by our good works, we cannot be lost by our bad works. Because you will hear this sometimes and say, well, I've done so many bad things in my life, God could never possibly forgive me. Where did you find that? That's not from the scriptures. And, and, and this should be a great relief to us all. And remember how we spoke. We said we are signed, we are sealed, we are delivered. It's all his. Thirdly, so he loved us, he awakened us, and he raised us. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. To raise is to lift, promote, even exalt positionally. Remember that song by uh, Josh Groban? You raise me up! Right? Now, it's interesting that the, it's originally written in Norway. I was just looking it up and when Josh Groban sung it, he actually dedicated his... Who, they said, anybody could raise you up. Your parents, your school teachers, whoever could raise you up. But he actually, Groban actually said, no, it was Jesus. It was God who raised me up. It's a great song. Well, this is what he did. This is what Jesus did. A physical position may be on earth, but our spiritual position is in the heavenly realms with Christ. To be seated means that the work is finished. Because when a, when a priest went into the temple, the one thing that he never did was to sit down. He was always standing in the presence of God. He, could, he dared not sit down. And even when the, the animal sacrifices were offered, even when all of that happened, he stood. Because the next day he would have to do another sacrifice and another and another. It was never ending. But Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was the final sacrifice. And this is why when he died on the cross, he declared what? It is finished. 
victory is not partial. Oh, I'll come back later and finish it then. No, it's, it's finished. It's not partial or temporary. It is complete. It is complete. And notice that all of these verbs are all in the past tense, right? This is something which has happened, not something which is going to happen. It has already occurred when you believed in Jesus Christ. When you gave your life to Christ, this is already in the past. It's already happened. You, ha- you don't have to work toward it or, or something to achieve it or, or years of effort to gain acceptance before God. It's been done the moment you believe. We were made alive in Christ, we are not the same and we cannot go back there and do those things anymore. We are under new ownership. We cannot go back to living the way we were. The before picture, the ugly one. We are, this is the after picture. And fourthly, he keeps us. In order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Our salvation, again, if you still don't get it, is no temporary arrangement. It is everlasting. You don't pick flowers. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. No. It is so that throughout eternity you might be a trophy of God's grace and his kindness in Jesus Christ. A little boy in Sunday school was asked to tell the difference between kindness and loving kindness because the the scripture uses both words, loving and loving kindness. And um, he put it this way. He said, if I ask my mother for a slice of bread and butter and she gives it to me, that is kindness. If she puts jam on it, that is loving kindness. (laughs) That's a great truth, isn't it? That's a great truth. A beautiful illustration of the difference between, between these terms. The cherry on top. And there is... And there is also that, that difference between mercy and grace, that in short, mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, but grace is God giving us something we do not deserve. The overflowing grace, that the, the cup overfloweth with his grace. What an amazing truth, right? Are you still okay? You're with me? Finally, notice that Paul says here, he says, with Christ three times. We were made alive with Christ, we are raised with him, we are seated with him. And this is not some weird form of Christian mysticism, right? It is an amazing truth, amazing experience that we have to live it out every day. We are joined to Jesus Christ and, 
And the Holy Spirit lives in us. We are not the same. And, and these three verses, these three verbs, sorry, made alive, raised, seated, refer to three historical events when Jesus came to save us. They call the what? The, the resurrection, the accession, the ascension of Jesus and the session of Jesus. The resurrection, the ascension and the session of Jesus. In some churches, this is called the creed that is repeated, that is affirmed. What is amazing, however, is that Paul is not writing about Christ, but he's writing about us. He is affirming not just that God awakened, raised and seated Jesus, but that he awakened, raised and seated us, you and me, with us, Christ, in him. So as we look at the world around us, as terrible, incomprehensible as it appears, We've seen a lot worse historically in the last 2,000 years. But wherever the gospel was planted, the seed was planted, it grew despite the persecution, despite the suffering. Christians stood up and they gave hope in a hopeless society. Read Hebrews, read history, anywhere you go. Despite the suppression that is going on about the effects of Christianity, Christians have made a difference wherever they went at the cost of their own lives. Why? Because someone greater gave their life for them. So, there is no room for despair. Christ is with us and we are in him eternally. Amen.